0: Well, it is great to be able to open up the scriptures this morning. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. We are making our way through this amazing book of scripture uh, that has so much to teach about life uh, in the present for Daniel and also life in the future uh, for, for him and, and present living for us and future living for us as well. And so uh, Daniel chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Um, Brian mentioned it earlier um, but we are journeying through the Bible together as a church family this year. And if you haven't joined us uh, yet, or if you're new and you're like, whoa, where are they at? And can I still join? You absolutely can. Um, there's some reading guides available at the Welcome Center. There's also a version plan that many of us are, are going through together and that just kind of helps keep us all on, on the track. And then there's ways to comment even in there. It's been great to read some of the comments as you, in questions as you've engaged with the text this last month. We, we've recently come through... The book of Joshua entering the book of Judges yesterday. And so it's not too late. If you want to join us, jump into Judges today. You get a a very kind of book about messed up people. Uh, A lot of crazy stuff going on in the the book of Judges. Uh, But then once a month, what we're seeking to do is gather together as a church and to talk through um, the the scriptures that we've been reading. And so we're going to format that a little bit differently tonight. We're going to meet tonight upstairs here in the parlor at 6 p.m. And we're going to focus mostly on the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua. We'll do a little bit of, you know, recap, not recap, but a little like close out numbers. But we're going to talk a little bit about the purpose of Deuteronomy, purpose of Joshua, and engage questions. They're both incredible books. Uh, Looking forward to that time together tonight at 6 p.m. up here in the parlor um, so Daniel chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Um, this this morning, uh, we're, we're entering into a, a passage um, that, that comes, ironically, after Daniel chapter 7. I know, it's brilliant. Um, uh, Daniel chapter 7, if you remember, uh, there's a vision, and it's a vision of four beasts plus an extra beast, or, or a, a um, developing of that fourth beast into something else. So we can call it like five beasts, or we can call it four beasts plus something, uh, but we see this vision of beasts in Daniel chapter 7. And it talks about kingdoms that were reigning or that would reign to a time. You know, it talks about how there's this kingdom and there's this kingdom and this kingdom and this kingdom. And then there's a, a really kind of really, really bad kingdom. Even more so that, that than the ones who come before it who greatly opposes God. But then it talks about how there's an eternal kingdom that comes from God himself. And establishes itself for. Ever. We come to Daniel chapter 8, and we're going to zoom in on two of these kingdoms. That's what God is doing in giving Daniel this vision. He's, he's zooming in on kingdoms 2 and 3 that we saw in Daniel chapter 7. And there's this powerful image that even though there is wickedness and evil in this world, even though the days on earth may be dark, God himself will triumph over the darkness And it just, again, alerts us to the fact that there is a cosmic battle going on here. It's not just the battle of this country, or that king, or this president, or that prime minister. There's something much bigger going on in the world. And it's this battle between the adversary and God. Waging war against the people of God. Waging war against the purposes and plans of God. But how God himself is sovereign and will rule and will reign forever is something that we can look forward to with great joy, knowing that one day every kingdom will rise and every kingdom will fall, but there's still one king who is Lord over all. Amen? When you read the newspaper, that should bring you hope. <laughs> when, you, when you check your, your social media feed and you find out about the latest thing happening in whatever country that should bring you hope. When you walk into your place of business or your place of work or whatever, uh, or your school, that should bring you hope. Now, the prophetic writings, um, the the prophets are a group of major prophets and minor prophets. The prophetic writings um, in the Old Testament often have to do with something going on with God's people Israel. Because in Deuteronomy, which we read recently as a church, God says uh, after, you know, he's getting ready to have them be in the land, Moses is about to die. He says to them, hey, if you do this and this and this, here's the blessing you're going to experience from God. However, if you forsake God, here's the result of forsaking God. And one of the the results of forsaking God for Israel was that God would send them eventually into exile out of the land. And so, what we have in the prophets, the writing of the prophets, is you have this constant um, alert and warning for many of the prophets saying, Israel, turn back to God. Israel, turn back to God. But then you come to a point where it's not uh, just turn back to God to keep you in the land, it's turn back to God because you're in exile. But don't worry, or not, don't worry, uh, but but God communicates through some of his prophets like Daniel, by the way, there is still a future for you. By the way, even though you have been faithless, God will be faithful. Even though you have wandered from God, God will bring you back. And so the prophets have this um, story in this this message that at times is really, really challenging for them to hear as a people. Um, But it's this message that God will be faithful even amidst their unfaithfulness. So what I want to do this morning is begin by reading the text together, and then we're going to work our way through a ram and a goat and a bunch of horns, okay? That's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, please read with me, uh, beginning in chapter 8, verse 1. You can remain seated. Uh, let's just be reminded, though, this is the word of God given to us. What a, what a gift and treasure it is. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign... A vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one that had appeared to me earlier. I saw the vision, and as I watched, I was in the fortress city of Susa, in the province of Elam. I saw in the vision that I was beside the Ulai Canal. I I looked up, and there was a ram standing beside the canal. He had two horns. The two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up last. I saw the ram charging to the west, the north, and the south. No animal could stand against him. And there was no rescue from his power. He did whatever he wanted and became great. As I was observing, a male goat appeared, coming from the west, across the surface of the entire earth, without touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and rushed at him with savage fury. I saw him approaching the ram and infuriated with him, He struck the ram, shattering his two horns, and the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The goat threw him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat became very great, but when he became powerful, the large horn was shattered. Four conspicuous horns came up in its place, pointing toward the four winds of heaven. From one of them, a little horn emerged and grew extensively toward the south, the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew as high as the heavenly host, made some of the stars and some of the hosts fall to the earth and trampled them. It made itself great, even up to the prince of the host. It removed his daily sacrifice and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. Because of rebellion, a host, together with the daily sacrifice, will be given over. The horn will throw truth to the ground and will be successful in whatever it does." Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the speaker, How long will the events of this vision last? The daily sacrifice, the rebellion that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary, and of the host to be trampled. He said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there stood before me someone who appeared to be a man, I heard a human voice calling out from the middle of the Ulai, Gabriel, explain the vision to this man. So he approached where I was standing. When he came near, I was terrified and I fell face down. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me, made me stand up and said, I'm here to tell you what will happen at the conclusion of the time of wrath because it refers to the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes represents the first king. The four horns that took the place of the shattered horn represent the four kingdoms. They will rise from that nation, but without its power. Near the end of their kingdoms, when the rebels have reached the full measure of their sin, an insolent king, skilled in intrigue, will come to the throne His power will be great, but it will not be his own. He will cause terrible destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and by his influence. And in his own mind, he will make himself great. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be shattered, not by human hands. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. Now you must seal up the vision because it refers to many days in the future. I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was greatly disturbed by the vision and could not understand it. And Lord, would you give us wisdom to understand it as well? (laughs) Father, we pray um, for your Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning. God, in these words that for Daniel were very difficult to comprehend, on on our side of things, they're maybe perhaps a little bit easier to comprehend. But God, help this not to be history for us. Help this to be the living word of God that leads and guides us into truth. And that reveals how we can live for you in the time in which we live. For your honor, for your glory, we pray. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so our setting here, we find in the first couple of verses, it's in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign that Daniel gets a vision. Now, Daniel's not new to visions and dreams, uh, but many of the times when he receives them, they're quite disturbing. Uh, we, we found in the last verse there that he's greatly disturbed, he was overcome, and he lay sick for days. So this experience that he had was, was something that made him stop in his tracks. It, it wasn't an easy thing to behold or to engage with. It caused concern. It caused confusion. May it not for us today. Um, we come to this passage though. And I just remind you, chapter eight uh, comes after chapter seven. And it actually comes after chapter seven in sequence as well. Uh, in chapter seven, we find in the first verse, it says, in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. So you have Nebuchadnezzar and then you have some other kings. You come up and Belshazzar's the last king of Babylon. It's Belshazzar under his reign that we read in chapter five. He loses the kingdom because he goes absolutely against God. God brings uh, another army, the Medes, to come in and to essentially conquer him and to pronounce judgment on him. And so we find if you're keeping track of the order of chapters in chronology, we have chapter 7, first year of Belshazzar, we have chapter 8, third year of Belshazzar, and then chapter 5, where Belshazzar's reign comes to an end. All right, this book is not chronological, just helpful for us to remember. Um, we are also, in chapter 8, we're switching languages. For you, it's English. Uh, for the ancient readers, we have just switched from Aramaic in chapter 7 to Hebrew in chapter 8. So there's something that's going on there where they're communicating to more broadly the peoples of the day, and we're now communicating in Hebrew, probably reflecting that Daniel's message is kind of directed more specifically or more intentionally towards the Jewish people. Why? Because they're in exile. They're in exile for a long time. Uh, and they're awaiting what God would do in the future. And God is giving Daniel a bit of a vision so that he understands what's coming in the future. Um, so this is about uh, 550 to 540 BCE uh, where we find uh, this chapter taking place in the third year of King Belshazzar. In this vision, Daniel sees himself in the, in the city of Susa, all right? uh, Shushan in Hebrew. It, it is the capital of the Persian Empire later in, after Daniel's life. Uh, it, it's a, it's a, a city that comes prominently in the book of Esther. Uh, this is the... Uh, city of Susa. This is an excavated um, part of the city of Susa. You can see there's a royal palace and a king's gate. There's different buildings. Then there's a a royal city and a royal terrace. When you look at it like this, you go, wow, it's just a bunch of dirt. Um, Here's what one of the uh, citadels would have looked like back in the ancient time, according to various reconstructions. It was was beautiful. It was glorious. It, it, It indicated power. You come to this and you can kind of see how in this, um, in this photo you have um, the palace of Xerxes that happens in the time of Queen Esther uh, that happens here. And what's mentioned in the text for today is the Ulai Canal. And the Ulai Canal is essentially a tributary or, or, or a piece of water that's working its way around the city, but it's connected to this river right here. So Daniel finds himself Somewhere along this canal, when he is receiving this vision, that's where he's at in the vision. Um, Here's another way you could look at it this is the actual canal right here. Um, So, Daniel's somewhere along here, the city's somewhere up in this area. We come to then, he has this vision of a ram. All right, he has this vision of a ram, and the ram is helpfully. uh, we're told who the ram is. If you look at verse 20, I think it is. It says, "Yeah, the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia." So God's, God's um, translating, or he's, he's describing what this is. Daniel doesn't have to guess who the ram is. The, the ram is Media and Persia, which is helpful because he doesn't understand everything going on this vision, and and so God is helping him out with this, and. Daniel's vision is going to zoom into these two, um, these two um, empires, if you will, Media and Persia, that are often tied together, actually almost always tied together in the book of Daniel, but um, they're also going to be supplanted or replaced by a goat that's going to come by in a few minutes. So verse 20 identifies the ram as the kingdom of Media and Persia. Um, and when we look at verses 3 and 4, we see that this accurately describes their reign as we look back historically. There's two horns that were long. And... Um, And the longer one came up last, the Medes came first, the Persians came second. And while the Medes were strong in the initial part, the Persians became strong later in life. So you have these two horns, one grows a little bit longer. You see the metaphors that are being painted here. And he sees that there's a ram that's charging and it's moving to the west, to the north and the south. And there's no animal that can stand against him. There's no one who could rescue him from his power. In other words, this is a powerful army that comes in and does whatever it wants. It completely moves over everything in its wake. And if you lived at the time that this was happening, you would have been like, they're just like the world conquering power. What else can we do? There's there's nothing else we can do. Notice also, it says here, and became great. One of the themes that's in this chapter is in verse 4, became great, is in verse 8, talking about the goat, became very great. Another one in verse 11, talking about the little horn, it made itself great. And then it comes again in verse 25, to make himself great. There's this underlined make himself great, make himself great, make himself great. And one way you could understand this is. It's becoming stronger. It's asserting its presence. It's it's asserting its power over a group of people. But there's more behind this word. This word can be translated as strong. It can also be translated in this context as arrogant or magnifying oneself. What the author's trying to help us understand that it's not just power. It's power that says, look at me. Look at how great I am. And this is not new for kingdoms of this earth. Virtually every kingdom makes some sort of display of strength to say, look at how great we are, both in our modern time and in our ancient time. And over and over, you see this image, in this case, of a ram that's strong. You don't think it can be conquered. And it makes itself great. It's arrogant. It's magnifying itself. And then verse 5 happens. As I was observing, a male goat appeared coming from the west across the surface of the earth without touching the ground. It had a horn in its eye and it came towards the two horned ram that I'd seen standing beside the canal and rushed at him with savage fury. And so what we have historically going on here is we have an all knockout drag down fight. We have one kingdom Over here, strong and great, we have another kingdom that comes in and it begins to go at it. Historically, we look back. I mean, we're told in the text that the goat is the kingdom of Greece and that the horn, the conspicuous horn, is the first king of the kingdom of Greece, a man by the name of Alexander the Great. All right. When Alexander the Great comes into the picture, he's super young. By the age 30, he had conquered the known world. So in, in 10 years, literally I, he was a student of Aristotle for a while. His dad dies somewhere in those early or like late teen years, and, and then he takes over as, as essentially the, the military mastermind behind the Greek army, and he comes in and he does some absolute damage. Um, he's, he's born, so we're talking like 356 BC, uh, and he conquers much of the known world. And it's, it's interesting. Here's a photo, a mosaic of Alexander the Great and Darius. Um, Darius is the Persian king at this time, and he's over here. And you can go read a whole bunch of history about the battles between these two. For all intents and purposes, Greece was majorly outmanned. Darius had the power, he had the strength, he had the numbers. But Alexander the Great was given by God, for this season, for this time, the ability to command troops in an incredible way. And and he goes and he does absolute damage. Uh, He loses a lot of people too, but he does absolute damage being outmanned by the Persian army. And he comes in and just notice like how the text describes this. You know, it it says, I saw him, verse seven, approaching the ram, infuriated with him. He struck the ram, shattered his horns, his two horns, and the ram was not strong enough to stand. I don't know if you've ever seen a a fight between a a goat's take place or something like that. We we used to watch um, when some of our, when our oldest was little, we used to love watching Planet Earth. Anybody ever see some of those DVDs? DVDs, you guys stream everything these days. Those videos, if you will. Um, We used to watch Planet Earth and you get to these fights between animals. And when it goes, it just goes. And they're just after each other and after each other until one emerges victorious. The craziest one we ever saw was two giraffes going at it. That was just crazy. Like using their necks to whip around and try and decimate the other one. Here we have Alexander the Great comes in and he just comes for the Persians. And in 10 years, he absolutely decimates the Persian army. God, God in his sovereignty gives him this power over the land. and But notice what happens. Um, verse 8 says, the male goat became very great, but when he became powerful, the large horn, i.e. Alexander the Great, the first king, chapter, verse 21 says, it was shattered. So you get this this picture again of a kingdom that rises and it's strong and you don't think that anyone or anything could ever conquer it. And just like that, conquered. Alexander the Great, his kingdom goes into a bit of a rebuild um, after his death, his mysterious illness in Babylon. And, and he has four generals who come after him. You'll notice here in the text, uh, in verse 8, the last part, it says... Four conspicuous horns came up in his place, pointing to the four winds of the heaven. He's, he's talking about there's four generals that come up after him here. I think I have here. I want to show you this one first. The four generals are this. You have Cassander. Uh, you have Cassander. Let me try say it right. Cassander, who's in Macedon and Greece up here in this area. You have Lysimachus, sorry for my pronunciation there, who's over this area. You have Ptolemy, who's down here in Egypt. You have Seleucus, who takes over part of this area of where Israel is at. And of course, Syria, and then all over here to the east. You have these four generals essentially take over, over a course of years, and they establish their own dominance over these areas. What I find fascinating is that you have Babylon, who's kind of great and united over all. You come to that next kingdom in chapter two, and it begins to, to, to conquer Babylon, but it becomes to fracture. You go to two. You come to Alexander, and then it goes to four generals. And while you have power being exerted, you have less and less and less of a unified world and a unified kingdom. You have Seleucus here. Um, who comes in, and by about 301 BC, we have these divisions of the kingdom after Alexander the Great. And the Seleucid Empire actually goes, and this matters for our text, it goes to the south, to the east, and to the beautiful land. The beautiful land here is a way of saying Israel. Uh, It's a way that the author says Israel in verse 9. So there's, from one of them, verse 9 says, a little horn emerged, grew extensively. So so the picture is this. We've got Alexander the Great comes in, goes to four generals, and then one particular ruler, which comes from a place, the south and the east and the beautiful land, is highlighted in the text. And it comes from the Seleucid kingdom. And it's a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. That's the person who's likely in view here of the sense of what is for Daniel future prophecy that he doesn't know who's coming, but he knows someone is coming in succession. But for us, we look back and we say, oh yeah, that makes a ton of sense from where things are at. This comes through and then we come to this um, little horn that emerges by the way, I, I was looking at this photo this morning. You hunters in the room i 've no idea how you would mount this in your in your house i, I, I you 'll have to tell me how you do that, but these these horns on this ibex uh, this is taken in the land of israel those are that 's a ridiculously long two set uh, set of two horns. Oh my word. Um, but you have this ram, or not, you have the ram, you have the goat, and then you have the little horn that comes in. This one has two horns just because I thought it was an incredible photo. Um, This one comes in and the story zeroes in on this one. It says that it grew as high as the heavenly host. It made some of the stars and some of the hosts fall to the earth and it trampled them. And notice again, it says it made itself great. It made itself arrogant. It magnified itself. Notice how it does this, even up to the prince of the host. And notice what happens. Daniel's being told, it's going to remove his daily sacrifice. It's going to overthrow the place of his sanctuary. Because of rebellion, a host together with the daily sacrifice will be given over and the horn will throw truth to the ground and will be successful in whatever it does. When we come to the story of Antiochus Epiphanes, um, he is a ruler who ruled over this area, which included in part down in this Israeli region. Um, As he does that, he has a deep hatred and disdain for the Jewish people. A deep, deep hatred. Um, Not only that, he made himself great. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes uh, comes from a Greek word which refers to God. It means God manifest. He's essentially asserting himself as, I am God manifest over my entire kingdom. Um, He believed that he was a manifestation of Zeus, who was the highest Greek God. And he was Zeus here on earth. So, So it's not just, I'm the king and the ruler. It's, I am God, is what he is saying. He removed the daily sacrifice. Historically, we know from various literature from the time, that he actually ceased the ability for the Jewish people to offer sacrifices, the daily morning and evening sacrifices in the Jerusalem temple. He made that no-go. Not only that, he defiled the sanctuary. He put a pig on the altar of God, which a pig is not kosher, a pig is not something that Jewish people engage with in any way, shape, or form. But he put that on the altar of God. He desecrated the sanctuary. Not only that, it says here that, he, that this person would throw truth to the ground. One of the ironic things is that Antiochus literally threw copies of the Old Testament scriptures to the ground and he burned them. He, and it's, it's ironic in the sense that here he is actually fulfilling what, you know, he's burning the text that he doesn't believe in. And yet he's also fulfilling the very text that he doesn't believe in by throwing them to the ground. And trying to stamp them out of history. Antiochus wanted more than just to rule, he wanted to be God. He wanted to be God over the area, and he wanted to make people, especially the Jewish people, into part of the Greek culture. Uh, the, the word here is to Hellenize the Jewish people. He wanted to make the Jewish people not, not just see him as their um, their ruler. He wanted them to see him in such a way that they would become like a Greek. That they would become a part of the culture and to assimilate into all of its ungodly forms. So he, he went about... Um, a number of different processes to not just rule them, but to make them give up their religious background and their heritage and their love for God and their desire to follow after God. He wanted to make them like a pagan. Now, we think about this from this day and we go, wow, that's crazy. But we look at our world really for all of time, but that includes today, and this is constantly the battle that the people of God face. How do you walk as a follower of Jesus in a culture that says, become like us, and the thing that they want you to become like is oftentimes very against the values and the teachings and the heart of God? You know, values like how you treat people. Like, what does it mean to love someone who is made in the image of God in our world today that absolutely matters? And I'm going to say, our culture doesn't have very good answers for how to do that. Because it's so easy in our culture to see and even participate in is, I can write them off because I'd rather be strong and I'd rather be right than give them the love of God. We throw truth to the ground by, by, by saying sometimes, this doesn't matter. God said it, but it doesn't really matter. I, 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 I want to have my mind directed by the things of the world. It's exactly what Paul engages with when he writes Romans chapter 12. Therefore, therefore brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable. This is your, this is your act of worship. And then he says, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. Don't become Hellenized, I think, if he were writing in this time. He'd say, don't become Hellenized to the things around you. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We face this in our day-to-day. We have forces around us that want to make us more and more like the culture instead of like what God intended for his people to be, a light that shines in the darkness. Now, um, these verses, 10, 10 through 12, also give us a, just a, a picture into a, a future time, uh, its future to Daniel, where a ruler or kingdom would oppose God, eradicate his worship, and attempt to destroy the holy people and make himself great. Again, this word great reeks of arrogance. I, I love what one writer said. He said, Antiochus' Epiphanes is the embodiment that godless power sorry, Antiochus Epiphanes is the embodiment of that godless power which in all ages opposes God's kingdom. In other words, he's a historical figure who did this in that day, but he's a a figure that we can look to and say, yeah, he's not the only one who's endeavored to do that. I I think Antiochus is the person in question, specifically in Daniel chapter 8, But Daniel 8 is, again, next to Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, God's giving this great scope of history. And then in chapter 8, he's going to zero in on the second and the third kingdom. I think one of the reasons he does that, he he puts those two next to each other, is because he wants you to see what's happening at a cosmic scale is going to happen even in a more specific scale for the Jewish people. That that while there's going to be someone who's going to be anti-God and anti-His people here, by the way, there's going to be someone who's going to be anti-God and anti-His people here from a broader lens of history. So, in one sense, chapter 7 gives us the more fuller version of this. And in chapter 8 gives us a type looking through the life of Antiochus Epiphanes that there's going to be a godless one who is going to come. But nevertheless, we shall not fear because their seeming rebellion will not last forever. That even though there's ungodliness in our world today, God will one day put a stop to it all and his kingdom will come and it will rule and it will reign in perfect righteousness, holiness, and justice. With Jesus himself on the throne. The, the other thing it tells us, if you look um, down to, to verse 14, he says to me, For 2,300 evenings, 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored. He, he's giving him a sense of um, this will not go on forever. There will come a time in which I will say, Enough. Great hope for the people of God. There's a lot more we could talk about with that number. We might do that in the second hour uh, together. Um, for the sake of time. We see all this come down. So, you know, verses 1 through 14 give you the vision. Verses 15 through 26 give you the interpretation of the vision. Um, we've read that together. Verses 23 through 26 give more explanation about the things. I want to highlight one or two things briefly. Uh, the first one is this. Uh, verse 24, it says, His power will be great, but it will not be his own. There's going to be demonic forces that, that animate um, this this, um, this uh, what's the word I want? This war against God. This mutiny against God. He will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the power along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to pr- prosper. Notice it says, middle of verse 25, it says, in his own mind, he will make himself great. Again, arrogance and, and magnifying self will be one of the things that really describe um, this person, Antiochus. And Daniel is left in verse 27 with, he's just overcome. He's just overwhelmed. He lays sick in his bed. What do you do when you receive a vision like this? Really briefly, I want want to make three applications for you and for I today. How, How do we take something that happened in the past and be like, all right, so this is in part history, but it's in part looking to the future. How does it help me live now? And, and the first thing is this. We have to be careful of making anything greater than God. Be careful about making anything greater than God. This this. Um, desire to make self great or to become arrogant or to magnify self that we see four times in this passage is something that, frankly, I face in my own life almost every day. Um, We find in the Hebrew Bible, there's a story about a king whose name is Uzziah. He's largely a pretty good king, and God strengthened him, and God made him prosper, the text says. It actually says it a couple times. God made him prosper, God made him prosper, God made him prosper. You come to the end of that, though, and it says in uh, one verse, it says that he enjoyed blessings, and he praised Yahweh. But in verse 20, uh, or chapter 26 of Second Chronicles, in, in verse 16, you'll have to look there, but you can make the note if you want. It says, when he grew arrogant, it led to his destruction, arrogance, in other words, this idea that I can walk apart from the strength that God gives me always leads to destruction. It it always leads to me trying to do something on my own, which is me walking in my own power instead of the power that God has given me through his Holy Spirit. God wants us to be dependent people. I, I know dependence isn't always the best thing to think about, like, oh, I'm dependent. But when our dependence is on God, it's rightly placed. In that story, Arrogance led to his destruction. We must never lose sight of our dependence on God, friends. Wherever you find yourself today, if you feel and you sense from God that you're walking in your own strength, come immediately back to God and say, God, I don't want to walk in the power of myself and the glory of myself. I want to walk in your power for your glory and just see what God does through you. When yield yourself to him. That's number one. Beware of making anything greater than God. Number two is this. Um, God prepares his people for difficult times so that they are forewarned and forearmed. Daniel is receiving this vision several hundred years before all of this actually happens. He's still in this first kingdom that's not even mentioned in this particular chapter when he receives this vision. It is natural to say um, Why do I need that information now? Uh, The Jewish people needed that information because when the kingdoms come and the kingdoms go, and they go, God, what are you doing? It's God's message to them, by the way, I've not forgotten you. By the way, I will be faithful to you. By the way, keep your eyes set on me. This is going to be tough for you, God tells the Jewish people, but don't lose heart. He's forewarning them, and by doing so, he's forearming them. In John chapter 16, Jesus does the same things to his disciples with regard to coming persecution. He says, he says I, I'm going to warn you of coming persecution so that you will not stumble, so that you will not go into sin. He says, though, after that, he leaves them with more than a knowledge of future trouble. He tells them that the Holy Spirit is going to come, and he's going to guide them into all truth. You know, we find later in Paul's writings that, that believers are called to put on the belt of truth in our lives because there's so many lies that come from internal and external um, areas in our, in our minds and in our culture. We have to be constantly guarded against the lies of the adversary so we can walk in the truth of God. But it's the Holy Spirit who scripture says leads us and guides us into all truth. In fact, Jesus says, I need to go so that the Holy Spirit can come. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. God has given us his Holy Spirit so that we know what matters to God's heart, so we have the power, and God even gives us the desire to walk after his way. And that process or that fruit comes By yielding to the work of God in our life. God has given you and I everything we need for life and godliness. He's given us everything we need to speak to a culture that is against God. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict people of sin. It's the Holy Spirit's job to to give us righteousness through Christ's work on our behalf. It's the Holy Spirit's job to bring judgment or or to bring a, a sense of you're walking in the wrong way. All he's given us is the opportunity to declare truth and to love people as Jesus loved them in the midst of this, which often means speaking truth. But we don't have to worry about what to say and when to say it. When we are yielded to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will lead and guide us in what is right for that person, in that situation based upon the word of God, which is true for all time. I love what one writer said. He says it this way. We'll skip that one and that one and that one. Um, I love what one writer says. He says it this way. In the meantime, the Israelites were to live out their faith in a Gentile world under circumstances that would make it more and more difficult to do so. Does that sound familiar? They had to count on the sovereignty of God to sustain them by generation by generation, crisis by crisis. They also had to trust the power of God to control the flow of world empires as they rose and fell. Get this, though. God's agenda is never in jeopardy. You read the newspaper, you see things going on in the culture, or your family or whatever, God's agenda is never in jeopardy. Nevertheless, they were to be prepared for the longer term. Notice what Daniel does at the end of this chapter. He's overcome, he lays sick for days, But then there's a shift that happens in his life. He says, Then I got up, and I went about the king's business. Daniel had been given a task by God to serve in the kingdom of Babylon for that time. He was focused on the work God had given him to do. Now, he's serving in the kingdom of a pagan king. But God had placed him there. And God had given him the strength and and the grace needed to represent Yahweh in the midst of a pagan land. My friends, God has placed each one of us where we are at. He knows exactly our circumstances. He knows exactly the things that are before us. He knows exactly the things that that cause our minds to become overburdened. He knows exactly what you have faced this week, this month, this year, and in all of your life. Daniel gets up and he goes about the king's business because that's what God had given him to do. What has God given you to do? As you do that, you know, I love the way the New Testament says it. It says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, like Paul wants to remind us that there's nothing that's excluded from this. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Wherever God has put you and placed you is a place that he calls you and I to step back into that life and say, all right, God, here we go. God, would you use me? God, would you work through me in my school? Would you work through me in my place of employment? God, would you work through me when I call a medical provider? Would you work through me as I talk about getting my car fixed? God, would you work through me as I as I work through what it means to face the end of a life of a dear friend or a family member, God has placed these situations in our lives, but he's not left us alone. He's given us the Spirit so that by his grace, our lives might shine the glory and the power of God that we wouldn't magnify ourselves but Christ would be magnified in our body, Paul says, whether by life or by death. Because for Paul, for us, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. I don't know where that meets you in your life today, but wherever you are at, know this. Jump back into what God has placed before you. Walk in the confidence of the Holy Spirit living through you, follower of Jesus. Seek to make him great and trust the rest to God. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I'd love to be able to share with you the hope of Christ that you can experience in your life because it's absolutely life-changing. Walking with God is one of the greatest adventures of faith and one of the greatest just wow moments of, God, you met me here, and God, you met me here, and God, you met me here, that you could ever imagine in your entire life would you pray with me, please? Our Father and our King, we thank you that you have not left us by ourselves. Jesus, we thank you that when you left, there's a Holy Spirit, a counselor, a comforter, a helper that would come and guide and lead us into all truth that would work through us to bring godly conviction to our hearts and to the hearts of the people in our lives and in our communities and in our world. God, would you give us a heart for the things that break yours? Would would you give us a heart that desires righteousness and joy and justice and peace in the midst of a world where things are a, a bit upside down many days? Lord, would you help us to stay focused in this time and what it means to live with and for you in our world for the glory of Jesus. Help us, God. We need you in this. We cannot walk in this in our own strength. We need the strength of your Spirit. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Messiah and our Redeemer. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.